Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, marriage and family therapist. Though most of the people listening to this episode will be college students in the Utah Valley area, this is going to be for anyone at any age seeking a committed partner, or anyone trying to court their current partner more effectively. I'm not going to be talking about a bunch of specific techniques or guidelines as much. You can probably just Google those kind of things and get some good ideas. I've also got a couple links to some videos. Um, Those will be in the description. I'm mostly going to talk about the principles of mental health that we can work on in ourselves to help us effectively apply the relationship skills we might learn. Because, you know, you can read books for days about relationship skills, but you won't be able to use any of them if your emotional work is not managed. So that's what we'll be talking about more today. The material I'll be reading through are the blog posts, Paper Dolls, Decisions, Decisions, The Psychology of BYU Breakups, and Become as Little Children, Where Did We Go Wrong? One of the chapters from my book. Then I'll explain how we actually get ourselves to that healthy place. All right, let's get started. Paper Dolls and the Concept of Adoption Where does your self-worth come from? How do you feel validated? A sense of fulfillment, a sense of importance. Your sources of self-worth can be used to explain your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Belonging and love is the third level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you've ever taken Psych 101. But the need to be valued can outweigh all other basic needs. The need for validation can drive people to die from eating disorders, make them stay in physically abusive relationships, and to take their own lives. It flips Maslow's hierarchy on its head. Validation trumps physiological needs. So we need to make sure we have our basic need of validation coming from reliable sources, at least as much as we need reliable shelter and consistent sources of food and water. The paper doll is a model we can use to visualize how validation is needed for a sense of security. The following model shows a person who draws the majority of their self-worth from a stable family environment parents that often showed unconditional love and generally loving relationships with siblings. This person also draws validation from other sources, friends, work, talents, and personal appearance. But the loss of any one of these other sources will not lead to severe insecurity or the person feeling naked. Losing them might hurt, but they are not essential. This blog post includes some diagrams. I am also including the link to it in the description below so you can see what diagrams I'm talking about. Now, imagine the insecurity of someone without significant validation from primary attachments. They have poor or superficial family relationships. This person may get some validation from other sources, but they don't provide security because they are temporary or consistent. We're looking at a paper doll here that like has some short shorts and just a little bit of fabric on the top. I'll probably change that drawing to make it like a tiny crop top or something. Right now, they just have two short sleeves that say, you know, friends, work, talents, looks, and then the parents and family bit of clothing is like the underwear. Last, consider a person whose entire sense of worth comes from one source, like romantic partners. This person must always be in a relationship to feel okay, and the insecurity of losing this source of validation is unbearable, leading to anxious behaviors, which lead to breakups and a string of desperate, dysfunctional relationships. We're looking at a paper doll that just has a uh, that just has a onesie, a leotard that says "romantic partner." Like, if that romantic partner is gone, then this person feels totally naked. So, 
Take a look at your own sources of validation. Are you getting enough to feel okay about yourself? Where are you getting it from? Are your sources temporary or permanent? Are they conditional or unconditional? Which ones could you lose and still be okay? Which could you not live without? People who don't have strong attachments to their immediate family tend to feel insecure until they are adopted or given strong validation by someone else. Getting adopted by stable individuals or groups can help a person move through life securely. Extended family members, loyal friends, mentors, spiritual or religious groups, or a healthy romantic partner can potentially serve as stable sources of validation. Unfortunately, if someone doesn't feel they have access to these things, they may get adopted by people who can only give counterfeit validation. Gangs, elitist clubs, sex traffickers, needy friends, or abusive partners. These adopters give validation conditional on doing drugs, having money, selling your body, being helpful all the time, or showing love the right way. Sources of counterfeit validation give counterfeit security which feels way better than loneliness and worthlessness, so insecure people will maintain these destructive, adoptive relationships. Some people complain about the need for others' validation, citing the popular you know, pop-psych idea of generating a self-esteem entirely from yourself. We might call such a state self-actualization or transcendence. I'm not sure if one can actually achieve such a state completely in this life, such that others' negative opinions have zero impact on them, but I think people can get close under the right circumstances. Such a state would need to start with validation from others, though. Babies aren't born with a sense of self-worth. They need to learn from others how important or valuable they are. If a person is given stable, consistent, unconditional validation for long enough, that person will internalize their self-worth, which can sustain them even if the whole world is against them. If this process doesn't start in infancy, it can happen in adulthood, but still requires input from the outside. The unconditional validation often starts with a therapist who teaches someone to validate themselves and teaches their family members to give validation. If not a therapist, then a friend, mentor, religious figure, author, Buddhist monk, or anyone who can convey to this person that they are unconditionally worthy. After enough exposure, the need for other sources of validation diminishes, and the person becomes self-actualized. Alright, there's the end of the first post. Here's the next one. Decisions, decisions. Some decisions are paralyzing, especially for young adults. This car or that car? Which major? I've already switched five times. Should I be dating this person? What about every other belief I've ever questioned, I've never questioned until now? But worst of all, where the heck are we going to eat tonight? What if I make the wrong decision? What about the impacts on the rest of my life? These are tough decisions, and surplus anxiety doesn't help. But there is something to be done about it. We don't have to dread these decisions for the rest of our lives, or feel permanent regret for the ones we've already made. It starts by examining our fears, exploring our beliefs, and working through the discrepancies between our beliefs and our fears. The main source of decision anxiety I find is something I like to call damnation, which sounds pretty strong to most people when they first hear it, but let me explain. I use this word to refer to anything that creates a sense of stuckness, hopelessness, never recovering, or relegation to a state of lesser happiness. This feeling is closely linked with shame. It is extremely painful and can even threaten our lives. 
it makes sense that this fear could drive decision anxiety because a wrong decision feels like it could spell damnation, either for the rest of your life or even the afterlife. And I have a footnote on that that I'll address at the end. And why do we fear damnation, even over relatively insignificant things? If we actually explore the feeling rather than distract ourselves from it, we might find some valid reasons. Why can't I pick a car? Because I'm afraid of losing money if I accidentally pick a lemon. Why is that so unacceptable? Why can't I gain car buying experience through mistakes, like I would allow for my friends? Because financial trouble could lead to moving back with my parents. It's not okay to start over. I feel I have to get it right the first time. And why do I feel that way? Because mom is a perfectionist and made me feel bad when I didn't meet her standards. Next, why can't I decide on a major? It's because I'm afraid I'll make a decision that will negatively impact the course of my life. Why do I have a hard time feeling it's okay to make mistakes or to change my mind later? It's because I'm afraid of criticism from my parents. They might shame me for taking extra time to finish school, or I might have been made to feel that I'm incapable of making decisions for myself, so I avoid decisions to not feel like a screw-up. Why am I afraid of breaking up with this person or being dumped, even if I'm not even interested anymore? <sighs> because I'm afraid no one will ever love me again. I'm afraid of being alone. Why am I so afraid of being alone? Why do I believe that there's nothing shameful about other people being single, but there is for me? It's because I have specific traumas that make me fear loneliness, such as abandonment or neglect. Or I have a low self-esteem and I need a partner to bolster me to maintain my self-esteem. And why can't I pick a restaurant? And I kid you not, this is a true example. It's because eating out is something special and I need to squeeze everything I can out of special occasions. The food needs to be exactly what I'm craving and I need to be certain to have a good time. Why am I putting so much pressure on this outing? Why can't I just relax and enjoy it? It's because leisure time was always cut short for me as a child, and special treats were rare in my family. I felt ashamed whenever I just wanted to rest or do something for myself. It feels like this will be the last time in a long time that I'm allowed to enjoy something. These are just some common lines of questioning in the therapy room, like real experiences that I've had. And these fears can have multiple sources, but they almost always lead to an unconscious fear of something devastating like damnation. Often, just talking about the source of the fear can reduce it enough to help us make decisions. We find that what we are afraid of actually isn't that scary, or we don't believe it could happen anyway. Sometimes, though, we find deeper, we find something deeper that needs to be worked through before we can feel okay about deciding. We might need to process trauma, we might need to confront our parents about critical communication, or we might need to reevaluate why we're even considering certain options and not others. When the dialogue about a feeling is open, the feeling is released, or the solution often presents itself. Okay, and here's the footnote about folks concerned about eternal damnation. Consider your beliefs. What decisions could you make from which there is no redemption? Do you believe that there is a state of eternal torment waiting for certain people who don't make a certain cutoff? And does that coincide with your beliefs about deity? Is it possible to make wrong decisions accidentally? Find out what damnation actually means to you in a spiritual sense and determine if your anxiety matches up with your beliefs. All right, third post, the psychology of BYU breakups. Even though this will you know, very directly apply to uh, Latter-day Saints, 
these principles apply to everyone and these beliefs are not unique to Latter-day Saints. Is this breakup, friend-zoning, or ghosting just eating you up inside? Does it feel like you've lost your eternal companion, like you will never recover? It's okay to admit that this hurts, and it hurts for a reason. Part of it is grief. You really liked this person, maybe even loved them, or at least the idea of them, and you've lost the potential of something that could have brought you a lot of happiness. The pain of loss is natural and will heal as you let it happen and incorporate new experiences and relationships into your life. But if you find yourself unable to feel peace after a normal grieving period, and I'm not going to define what that is, you might have to dig a little deeper to see what is really stealing your peace. Have you ever ruminated on thoughts like these? Did I do something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? What's wrong with them? Did they always feel this way? Are they the one? Will we be getting back together later? I'll never find someone I'd love as much. I just want them to know how I feel. Was this the right decision? If these questions keep taking you in circles with no resolution, or you feel like the only relief will be to talk to this person, or even get back with them, we are actually dealing with an anxiety symptom. You are afraid of something. And what is this fear? In my experience helping people work through breakups in therapy, and from my own breakups, here's what I found. <clears throat> One, the fear of being bad, shameful, deficient, undateable, not good enough, unworthy. This fear drives us to scan through past interactions, looking for ways we might have offended our ex. If we find out what it was and apologize, we won't feel so guilty, right? Maybe, but probably not. The fear of not being able to apologize is also the fear of being a bad, unrepentant person that hurts people. Blaming the other person is also a symptom of this fear. Someone has to be the bad guy here, and it's not me. Because if it was me, I would feel shame. Two, the fear of being alone. A lot of these questions are looking for ways to get this person back, to make amends, to find a solution to the problem that caused the breakup. Again, part of this is healthy grief and wanting to regain a good thing. But some of it might be that you feel shame, unlovable, unattractive, unimportant, if you aren't currently in a relationship. This fear will drive thoughts of quickly getting back with your ex or anyone, regardless of the logic against it. Three, the fear of damnation. I use this word to describe that feeling of things never being as good as they could have been. You have been relegated to an existence that will always be less because it didn't work out with this person. This fear will drive hopeless thoughts of no recovery, or never finding anyone else, or holding out anxious hope that you will end up together eventually, even when that person gets engaged six weeks after they break up with you. 4. The fear of misunderstanding feelings. This is common for those seeking to follow spiritual promptings. Maybe you perceived a, mess, a feeling or message that you would be with this person, and it hasn't worked out. Either the message was wrong or will be fulfilled later. If you got the wrong message, it is scary to think that you might be generating spiritual promptings from your own brain, or that you aren't in tune spiritually, which can induce shame. We should try our best to not be driven to relationships or driven to misery by these fears. We can counter them in several ways. One, recognizing and putting names to them. Two, identifying the incorrect belief behind them. Three, finding out why our feelings mismatch our beliefs. Why do we feel this way? Where did I get this incorrect message? So, for Latter-day Saints, let's explore some basic relationship doctrines. One, there are no bad guys in, in breakups because no one is obligated to be in a relationship. 
Healthy relationships are bound by love, not duty. If they are bound by duty, then they breed resentment and are unsustainable long term. People have a right to break up with you for no identifiable reason, and that's okay. You have a right to break up because it just doesn't feel right, and that's okay. We are not to judge anyone by the method by which they break up, such as texting, ghosting, etc., even if it hurts really bad. It's also okay for someone to not be attracted to you, be annoyed by you, or to think you are great, but not be in love with you. These views are subjective and do not define your worth as a romantic partner or as a soul. Next, it is not a sin to hurt people's feelings. It is an inevitable and necessary part of relationships. Offending someone and getting offended doesn't always mean someone did something wrong. It just means someone got hurt, and that's okay. All wounds heal if properly treated. If you're feeling shame because you lost a relationship or hurt someone's feelings, you learned it from somewhere. Where did you learn that sadness or heartbreak were intolerable, that it was not okay for people to be upset? Lastly, if you're unable to feel happy while not in a romantic relationship, you might be looking at a self-esteem issue. Refer back to Paper Dolls for more on that. Let's explore some potential misunderstandings for Latter-day Saints. As far as I understand the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there are no such things as fate or soulmates. Such ideas contradict the doctrine of agency. Thus, I'm skeptical whenever I hear people saying something like, The Spirit told me it was the right thing. It just wasn't meant to be. The Spirit told me we would get married. That isn't to say these promptings aren't exactly as they are interpreted. I'm just saying I've heard about just as many relationships that ended in messy divorce after both were impressed that the relationship was right, or that the couple received contradictory spiritual messages about the direction of the relationship, meaning like the Spirit told one person they'd get married and the other person that they wouldn't. Any message interpreted as this is the right thing or the right person would imply that any other of the infinite number of potential relationships is the wrong thing. This means that if you don't get this one right, either by breakup, divorce, or you fizzle out on the mutual chat, then you are condemned to a lesser state of existence for eternity because you missed your shot with your soulmate. And I think that that is non-doctrinal. Again, I don't know if this message wasn't from God. Your promptings are yours and no one can say otherwise. But given the doctrine of agency and that God is not a matchmaker, I would think spiritual promptings would look more like, this is a good thing with lots of potential. This is a scary thing and may include lots of unnecessary hardship. Nothing. You can make a decision for yourself here. Um, Or perhaps some spiritual clarity over pros and cons of a relationship. Regardless of how it comes, I don't believe spiritual messages take away someone else's agency or make us feel shame, which is different from healthy guilt. There is a book chapter on that. Also, be aware of sharing spiritual reasons with the person you are dumping. It doesn't make me feel better to hear that God told you to break up with me. It's okay if you just weren't feeling good about it, or if you just don't like me that much, which is better than God not liking me. All right last chapter, which is called Become as Little Children. Where did we go wrong? One couple I worked with used to bring their infant to sessions, and she proved very useful in demonstrating what I was trying to teach her parents, vulnerability, authenticity, and effective emotional expression. We are the most vulnerable as babies, the most honest, and in most cases, the clearest about what we want and need. When babies are happy, they show it. When they're sad or angry, 
you are going to know it. If you don't immediately recognize the source of their distress, you can usually figure it out by screening for the basics. Food, sleep, love, physical pain, etc. Babies never make passive-aggressive remarks. They never make accusations or judgments. They never try to justify their behavior. They never try to make you feel like a bad person. They express their emotions in terms of how they feel, not in terms of what you are doing wrong. They never argue, and they never suppress their feelings. That is, until they're taught to do so. It is much more difficult to meet the needs of older people. They express their feelings in terms of arguments, criticisms, complaints, negative coping behaviors, logical reasoning, or just try and pretend that feelings don't exist. Your teenager, spouse, or parent's needs are way more cryptic than your baby's. For example, to express the need to feel loved and safe, baby says, which often translates to, I'm feeling scared and alone, please hold me. The common adult equivalence of this bid for love and safety might look like, you're as frigid as an iceberg. You only care about sex. I couldn't go on if you break up with me. You're working more hours just to avoid me. Why don't you go cry to your friends about it, since they'd understand better than me anyway? Or by binging on a show or phone game for hours on end, swiping on Tinder for hookups, spending time with drug or drinking buddies who will never judge you, getting more cats than one can safely care for, spending excessive time and effort on certain achievement to the detriment, to the detriment of other life areas, and so on. Unfortunately, these indirect ways of expressing and meeting needs are much less effective than the direct route that babies take. Babies get held and fed, but husbands get sexually rejected, wives get emotionally rejected, college students have unstable relationships, and high achievers are left without close friends. So why did we learn to hide the feelings? Basically, it's because we felt punished for having certain emotions. Whiners, crybabies, weaklings, and softies are shamed, discouraging fear and sadness. Anger is often met with attacks or other shaming. Even happiness and excitement can be invalidated by someone in a lower mood than you. Such as when they say, you think that impress that's impressive? What do you want, a gold star? Most people won't invalidate baby feelings, but most of us will invalidate some of our toddler's feelings. And it just gets worse from there. And as we get older, the less likely our feelings are safe to share. The more indirect we have to be, and the less tolerable our feelings become. They are no longer recognizable as feelings, but as threats. All you care about is sex, is a vulnerable emotion, such as sadliness, sadness or loneliness, disguised as an attack. So how do we show our true colors? How do we get back to the place we were as babies where it was so easy to receive unconditional love? First, notice the ways that you're hiding your emotions. Are you stuffing them or putting them in a cheap Halloween costume that gets poor feedback? Next, explore why you feel the need to hide the feelings. What experiences in the past or present sent the message that certain feelings are not tolerated? Identifying and processing the past and intervening in the present can decrease the threat to your soft emotions. Then, practice being vulnerable with people with whom it's safe to be vulnerable. Um, I, I put in a link to the Brene Brown vulnerability talk. It's a classic. If you go about expressing your feelings as feelings, not through logic, coping, or accusations, you will prompt others to do the same. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. You may get hurt as you live more vulnerably, but it is worth the risk to discover where you are actually safe and where you need to set boundaries. Become as little children. All right. That's all the material 
we are going over for today. These posts encourage us to reflect on the sources of our fears. They, our fears always come from somewhere. They're not personality traits, and they are not permanent. We extract them by sitting with them and digesting them. There are many ways to do this. Exposure therapy in CBT or DBT, EMDR, emotion-focused therapy, and narrative therapy are just some examples. I personally prefer using a mix of somatic experiencing and internal family systems, but the basic mechanism behind all of them is learning, both cognitively and physically in our bodies, that certain stimuli won't kill you. A simple exercise you can do to start working on this might look like this. Like this is literally something I do in therapy sessions. And quick disclaimer, um, if you are prone to panic attacks or dissociation, please don't do this without a professional. <clears throat> so sit or lay in a comfortable position and take some deep breaths. <sighs> Fill your lungs all the way up and feel your lungs filling up. Then think of the thing that you are most afraid of happening in this relationship, such as getting ghosted, dumped, divorced, maybe even being loved or someone getting to know you. Those are legitimate fears. Now pay attention to your body. All emotions manifest in our body in some way. And how is this one showing up in yours? Sick tummy, tight chest, tense shoulders, fidgeting hands or feet. Sit with that sensation and just take deep breaths with it. See if that tension moves or changes. If it does, then you've already done some processing. If it doesn't, it means you have to process another fear first. You have a contradicting emotion um, that wants you to keep this fear inside you, and that can be explored. As you concentrate on the emotion, other memories might come in that look or feel the same. These experiences likely color your relationship fears. They inform them and can give you material to process to reduce this fear. So this was a short um, you know, emotion processing exercise, and I'm going to talk more about the science of this and the process in an upcoming episode. Thank you so much.